Um, this morning, we are kicking off a new series, and I have entitled this series, God at the Mic. God at the Mic. God, you see, uh, in the Old Testament, spoke through the prophets, through Hebrew prophets, who more than 2,500 years ago spoke God's unchanging word. And though it was many years ago to God's Old Testament people, Israel, those words spoken in the Old Testament are incredibly powerful and relevant to our daily lives today. Um, See, the prophets didn't just give uh, an information download. It wasn't just something historical. They spoke what was then and is now the inspired word of God. And the word of God is given to transform our hearts, to change our lives, and to draw rebellious believers uh, and rebellious unbelievers to repentance and to draw us back to him. And so we'll have the opportunity really over the next 12 Sundays to listen to God who has stepped up to the mic. And the way that we're going to do that is one sermon each week to walk through the 12 minor prophets. Now, maybe you know the 12 minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Malachi. They are called minor prophets, not because what they say is unimportant, but rather because they are, relatively speaking, short books, short works of prophecy as compared to the five major prophets. Um, These prophets that we're going to walk through their stories uh, over the next several weeks, they uh, primarily lived and spoke and served as prophets for about a 300-year season of the Old Testament. The very first of the minor prophets were Hosea, Amos, and Micah, and they began their ministry of preaching in the 700s BC, 700s BC, which stands for Before Christ. And then ending, the the last of the minor prophets was the prophet Malachi, and he lived and worked uh, in the 400s BC. We think his book was written about 450 years before Christ. And then, historically, we have this 400-year period where God goes silent. He stops speaking through the prophets, be them major, minor, or otherwise, and God's people have to wait And God in that season was preparing God's people and was preparing the world for an arrival, for an arrival of the Messiah, the arrival of the Christ, the arrival of the Son of God. And we look back on that moment now and celebrate a very special holiday known as Christmas, that moment when Jesus himself arrived. Originally dated to 0 BC or AD, depending on how you want to count it, we uh, can do the math now and know that roughly 6 AD is when Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. AD, by the way, does not stand for after death. It stands for Anna Domini, which is Latin, which means in the year of our Lord. And so we're hearing from the prophets who spoke before Christ, and now today we live in what year? 2022 AD, in the year of our Lord. Um, as we walk through these uh, 12 prophets, we will be particularly unpresbyterian in our approach and we will go out of order. Oh, hold on. <clears throat> We're going to begin this morning with Joel. Uh, and so, if you will, begin opening to the Old Testament and find yourself in the book of Joel. In each book that we walk through, we're going to pick one particular passage in that book 
uh, to, to speak to us sort of a picture of, of everything that that prophet was given by God to speak on. So we're going to go to Joel chapter 2 this morning, and we're going to look just at verses 12, 13, and 14. Uh, one more note you should know particularly about the prophet Joel. Joel and Obadiah, those two books, um, are probably the hardest to be able to date exactly when they took place and exactly what the historical you know, moment was when they lived. It is probable... We're not sure, but it is probable that Joel's prophetic work was taking place during what would have been the ongoing destruction of Judah and the capital of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonian Empire. And the Babylonian Empire basically three times comes through Judah and just mows the people and the city down. And we think that Joel was perhaps written between 597 and 586 B.C., which would be between the second and the third and final time that Babylon finally comes through, destroys God's people, and actually carries them away finally to a captivity. Suffice to say that the believers at that time in the Old Testament were going through a time of difficulty. They were going through what we could call a time of uncertainty. They had questions. They were going through a time when the reality was that their people, their culture around them was in many ways rejecting God and they were experiencing those consequences and they were looking to God, how do we handle this situation? Nothing at all like we see today. So again, as we come here this morning, this is incredibly relevant to us as believers here in the New Testament. Here in Joel's word, the word of God to us this morning. Beginning in verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Let's go uh, to the Lord now in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you that it is powerful, that it is living, that it is active. We thank you that it is inspired and empowered by your Holy Spirit. And it is not just relevant to our lives, Lord. It is authoritative to our lives. And so, Father, we submit yourself to your word and ultimately to you. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would indeed lead us, Lord. Turn, warm, and quicken our hearts afresh to you and to your heart this morning, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Three ways this morning that we can apply the message in the book of Joel to our lives today. And I want us to think in terms of bad news and good news this morning. And so number one, bad news. Understand that the day of the Lord is coming. Understand that the day of the Lord is coming. What's the problem? Why is it that Joel here in chapter 2 says, yet even now you should return to me. Have you ever been in a situation where you thought, I I feel like uh, I stepped into the middle of something. Have I missed something? So Joel here says, yet even now. Context is incredibly important. Uh, We need to know where we are and what, what has just happened. 
Um, I remember uh, going with my brother in the year 2001 to go watch the, uh, the first Lord of the Rings movie, The Fellowship of the Ring. Um, I, did not, whew, um, I did not know um, much about the books. Forgive me, I didn't read the books. I just went straight to the movie. Um, we sat down and we're watching the movie. It's a long movie, by the way, if you haven't watched it. And uh, at, at the uh, two hour and 56 minute mark, I thought, man, this is getting really good. I'm going to take a, a restroom break. And so I left, not knowing that the movie is, in fact, two hours and 58 minutes long. Uh, also didn't know that it was going to be a trilogy. And so I left, so geared up, just into it, Frodo, what's going to happen? Come back, credits are rolling. <laughs> I look at my brother, I'm like, what happened? He's like, uh, I don't know, it just ended. I was like, what did I miss? And he didn't really know. Uh, come to find out later, there was more to come. This is the situation here. What did I miss? What is going on? So what I want to walk you through here real quickly is Joel chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 that tells you, what did I miss? Chapter 1, and if you have your Bible in front of you or you can scroll to it, maybe flip back and just sort of scan. I want to highlight to you what's going in chapter 1. Joel starts off in chapter 1 by saying, hey, listen, guys, as you know, we just had a massive locust invasion. Okay, not an imaginary, not a figurative, no, no, literal bugs all over the ground. As you guys know, they just destroyed everything. Verse 5 says, it was so bad. He says, you know, you guys who enjoy the wine bottles a little bit too much, well, you're all hopping back on the wagon because all the wine is gone. He says in verse 7 that these bugs literally stripped all of the bark off of the trees. That's how intense the devastation was. Uh, in verse 12, he says, all the food is gone, so all the happiness is gone. Uh, I've got a picture here for you. Did a little research on the historical realities of locust invasions. Did you know locust is not just a past thing? It is a very present thing. In 2020, there was a massive locust invasion in parts of the Middle East. Um, a individual locust can eat its own weight in food every single day. Right, do the math. Imagine if that's you. you can, they eat their entire body weight every single day in food. A small portion of a swarm of locusts eats the same amount as 2,500 people per day. Uh, A spread, a a swarm or spread uh, of these locusts can cover, uh, they say, about 450 square miles with, get this, 800 to 160 million locusts per square mile. This is destruction that that we cannot even begin to imagine. Again, this is not just a past. This is a historical present reality as well. But Joel here is saying in his prophetic work, he's saying, listen, you saw what the locust just did and you ain't seen nothing yet. Look at Joel chapter two now. We begin in verses one and two of Joel two. He writes this, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm, On my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations." If you read in detail chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, leading up to our passage for this morning, you'll notice at times his description now sounds like more locusts are coming. 
Um, he says, they, they leap upon the city, they run up the walls, they climb into the houses, they enter through the windows. And forgive me, all I can hear is the, uh, the remix of the hide your kids, hide your wife guy in the background as I hear that part of the scripture. Don't fire me. <laughs> then it starts to sound more like the language of an actual literal army that is coming. It says, like fire, like war houses, like chariots, like powerful uh, armies. Um, It is possible that he here is prophesying the historical events of Babylon who has come and will come uh, again into their world. But ultimately, do not miss the bigger picture here is not about bugs or about soldiers. It is that God is leading an army, a spiritual army, that will come in judgment. And even more terrifying is that this judgment will come upon God's people because of their unrepentant sin. Joel 2.11 tells us where this is coming from. It says this, The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Uh, This is not awesome like we used it in the 80s. This Bible word here, awesome, means destruction. It means terror. Job is warning about both an immediate historical event of judgment as well as a reality of a one final day, the day of the Lord, the second coming of Christ and judgment on the earth. Uh, Many of the Old Testament prophets in various ways pick up this same warning of the day of the Lord coming, a day in which God will intervene into human history and judge not just Israel, but all of the Gentile nations, which would be us. Jesus himself in the New Testament prophesies this same day of the Lord in Matthew chapter 24. Peter also picks it up in 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 10. Hear what Peter has to say. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed." So these temporary disasters, the locusts and the armies that we experience in this life in one way or another, are nothing in comparison to a final eternal day in which Jesus himself, fully God, will judge the world in righteous wrath and righteous justice. Now again, in our present day and age, we love justice, love talking about justice, as long as it is for someone else. But when we have to stand before a holy and righteous God, it is a fearful and terrible thing to know that we will all stand before the judgment seat of God who is holy and has a right to judge, and we on our own, outside of God's mercy, are guilty. This is not something to be trifled with. The problem is sin. The bad news is that we are inherently sinners. We deserve and outside of Christ are going to receive judgment, justice. Hell is a real place. You're like, I was just looking for an uplifting message this morning, Pastor, and this is what you got for me? Let me offer you this phrase, but God's mercy. If you've ever thought of amening in your entire life, this might be an appropriate moment. But God's mercy. Number two, The good news. The good news. God says, Joel here, God invites you to return to me. Not not me, Ben. 
Return to me, says the Lord. In verses 12 and in verse 13, let me read it again. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. See, the God who is the God of perfect justice is also God of perfect mercy. And he says, return to me. Do not miss what a gift this reality is. God does not have to. He is not required to. The Lord God Almighty says to us this morning, I still love you despite what you have done wrong, and I want you to come back. How many human relationships where one party offends another do not end with, I still want you. I still want you to come back, but, but end with, be gone. You're dead to me in one way or another. Understand, we do not deserve this option from God, but we have it today. And so let me say to you clearly, if you have messed up, and you know you've messed up, God is the God of second chances and 10th and 20th chances. In the Jesus Storybook Bible that we read in my house, I'm sure many of you have a copy of the Jesus Storybook Bible. We use it often in our nursery Uh, It describes God's love this way. I love this poetic refrain. It says, God's love is his never stopping, never giving up, always and forever kind of love. Now, maybe you think you're a pretty good person this morning. You'd say, well, you know, I've selectively chosen a few people to compare myself to in the world. And um, I would say I'm a pretty good person compared to fill in the blank person over there. Well, I have more news for you this morning. God does not grade on a curve. Certainly not a curve of our making. See, the, the standard of God's holiness and of his law is not our own cultural relativism, which we live in and love when it is convenient, but rather our standard is the word of God. James 2.10, even one sin makes us guilty of all of it, and none can claim just one sin. That's a terrifying passage. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And again, none of us can say, well, I, only, I sinned that one time. It was like 1997. I said a bad word. I shouldn't have done that. I'm really sorry, God. That's not the situation that we find ourselves in. God doesn't say return to the task of being a better person. No, he says return to me. Come back to me. Jesus in the New Testament puts it this way, Matthew chapter 11. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus steps into human history, and Jesus says to you today, I have made a way where there was no way. See, Christmas gifts are are, are cool and all, Santa's great. Here in Central Florida, we look forward to riding our toboggan down snowy hills in just a few months. But that is not the point of Christmas. The point of Christmas is is this, that the God who didn't have to came down to you. Came down to make a way of salvation, of hope, and gave up his one and only son for you and for me. He sent him to make the way when there was no Way. And so the question that we ought to ponder in our hearts, believer or unbeliever this morning, is, well, how do I then return? God invites me and says, return. How do I return? 
The Bible is very clear. He says, return with all your heart. I want to give you uh, just three ways that the Bible here explains what repentance, the Bible's word here, turning to God, what that looks like. Uh, The first is this, true repentance, Joel tells us, is being genuinely sorry for your sin. True repentance is being genuinely sorrowful for your sin. Joel says in verse 12, with weeping and mourning. What do you cry over? Um, Not just regret. Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus, the Savior of the world, and after he had done it, he had regret. He even went so far as to try and take those silver coins, the blood money, and give it back and say, never mind, I don't want it anymore. But he never repented. And we know that Judas Iscariot this morning is in a real place called hell. The question here is, does your sin make you grieve? Put it another way. Are you sad about the consequences that you are experiencing for the poor decisions that you have made? Or are you sad that you have grieved the heart of a good and holy God, who reveals himself as father and says, come back to me. Are you grieved that again you went, no, I'm going to do it my own way. Secondly, besides being genuinely sorry, true repentance is internal rather than just external. It's internal rather than just external because in verse 13, it says, rend your hearts and not your garments. To rend something is to tear something in half. The Old Testament Jews, a part of their culture, and rightfully so, was when they experienced grief and sadness, they would tear their clothes in half and they would weep and cry out. They would often scoop up the sand of the dirt and dump it on their head in grief nothing wrong with those external demonstrations of grief. The outward stuff is fine, but the outward stuff must reflect that there is something inwardly going on in your heart. Jesus quotes another Old Testament prophet, Isaiah, and says, this people honors me with their lips. But what? Their heart is far from me. It is easy, guys, to say you're sorry. It is easy in a church service to to walk an aisle. It is easy to show up to a church service because your mom made you come. It is easy to post a selfie on social media and rip a verse out of context to let everybody know how spiritual you are. It is easy to do the outward spiritual stuff, but it is hard to rip your heart open before the Lord and say, God, I hate my sin. And I'm sorry for what I have done because as the Bible says, my sin is against you and you only. I'm sorry for my rebellion and I want you to do what only you can do in my heart and change my direction. Thirdly, true repentance is is just that. It's turning away from sin and turning to Jesus in repentance. True repentance is turning away from sin and turning to Jesus in a changed direction. Verse 12 and 13, twice God says, return to me. It is in Hebrew, shocker, the word turn. These are not complex ideas that God is giving to his people here. Uh, When someone becomes a Christian, we say that they have converted. It means that they have turned around, that there is a forever change that has taken place in your heart and soul in your heart of hearts, 
It's the idea, if you're in the military and the drill instructor says what? About face. And when that instruction is given to you by that one in authority, you obey and you turn directions. You turn away from sin and say, I don't want to live that way anymore. And God, by your grace and by your Holy Spirit's power, would you help me to turn away from sin and to turn back to you? I know that I can't do it on my own. I need your grace to save me. I need your grace to change me. But I want to turn from my wickedness and walk in your way. So the question for us this morning is this, will you respond to God's invitation when he says, return to me? If you're a believer, he is talking to you. If you are a seeker this morning, he is talking to you. Turn to Jesus and away from sin. Admit you're a sinner. Ask for his forgiveness. Ask by his grace alone and ask that the Holy Spirit would empower you to live the way that God has called you to live. Uh, In the Old Testament, Psalm 95, in the New Testament, Hebrew 3, same phrase. The Bible says, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. If you hear the Lord's voice this morning, and I would say to you on his behalf, I'm not a prophet, don't harden your heart. It's because the reality is every single member of humanity, past, present, and future, will either experience God's endless mercy in a real place called heaven, or you will experience God's endless justice and wrath in a real place called hell. That means stop ignoring your sin problem. That means stop ignoring the spiritual questions of what do I believe is going to happen to my soul when I die. Face the questions. God says, return to me. He says, return to me with all of your guilt. Return to me with all of your sin and Leave it this morning at the foot of the cross. Jesus has already gone to the cross. Jesus has already taken the full wrath, the full punishment of God. He drank God's wrath, that cup, to the bottom so that all those who will trust in his completed work can experience the benefits of Jesus' perfect life rather than the consequences of my horrific sin. God says, return to me. Will you call upon him today? I'll give you one more reason that Joel here says. One, one more bit of good news. Number three, more good news. God is gracious and merciful. It's who God is. Listen to verse 13 again. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. See, the reason to repent is not something good in me. It's not something good in my character. The reason that we should repent is because of how good God's character is. Because of how trustworthy and how kind he is. In the book of Romans chapter 2, the Bible says God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. He is gracious. What does that mean? I I love the acrostic, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. 
Grace is getting from God what you don't deserve. All of his goodness, all of his kindness, all of his forgiveness. Being invited as a son or daughter of the king to live eternally with him. That's grace, getting what we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what I do deserve. I deserve his justice. He gave me mercy instead through Jesus. The Bible says he's slow to anger. God has a right to be angry over your sin. Do not forget that. But again, 2 Peter chapter 3 says he is patient. He is waiting for a time for you to repent and turn back to him. Bible says he's abounding in steadfast love. That's a loaded word in the Old Testament. In Hebrew, it's the word chesed, H-E-S-E-D. And chesed love is covenant love. It's an unbreakable promise kind of love. It's a kind of love that only God can show. And the Bible says he's abounding in it. How big is his love? Well, consider this. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6 says this about God's love. The Lord disciplines the one he loves, and chastises every son whom he receives. God's love is so good that he will not let you continue to wander in foolish things. And even his discipline is out of love. If you're a kid or you're a parent, you've had that experience, right? You get that spank and your mom or dad says, doing this because I love you. If you think it was hard to hear as a kid, it's harder to say as an adult. But God is saying even that discipline, and it takes a lot of prayer and a lot of discernment to know, is what, I'm experience, is what I'm experiencing, is this a matter of God is lovingly punishing me in this life to turn my heart back to him? Or is this a circumstance that he, he has sent in order to develop my character and my trust in him? It's not a result of sin. You've got to pray hard to that sometimes. But what the Bible makes clear is that in any case, God is doing it out of his love. That's his character. The Bible says that God relents over disaster. And then it says it again. Who knows whether he will turn and relent? The word turn here, it's the same word turn applied to God here as it was just applied to us a moment ago. So we should ask, okay, so what, what is the meaning here? Does God need to repent of sin? Certainly not. Does God change his mind? No, we know that God is unchanging in his perfect character. So what, what is going on here? I'll give you a theological word of the day. Ready? Anthropomorphism. How do you spell it? Uh, Google it. Anthropomorphism. What, God, what the, the scripture is doing here, this is uh, the prophet giving human characteristics to God. He is giving a human characteristic to God. In this case, it's the idea of changing one's mind, of relenting. What does, that, what does that look like? So there are many places, Old and New Testament, the Bible says something like, uh, the hand of God was upon them. You go, well, God is a spirit. God doesn't have hands. You are correct. What is going on? That's an anthropomorphism. It's a human characteristic given here by Joel in order to get our attention, to help us understand the heart of God, the heart of God that he desires us to repent, that he is inviting us to repent. So from down here, our perspective down here is regular old humans. We prayed, we repented, God showed grace. From up there, from the 10,000 foot view, from, from God's perspective, God already knew. God 
already sent his son Jesus for you. God is sovereign over all things in his goodness and in his kindness. Look at a a practical historical example. Again, we don't know exactly when Joel was written, but it is probable that in the days of the minor prophets, we've got a king of Judah named King Hezekiah. Again, the people of of Judah had had rebelled uh, against God, and God warned them of this same coming judgment or justice, and King Hezekiah prayed, and he encouraged the people in the nation of Judah to do the same, to pray and to repent. And we know from Isaiah that God relented, and God saved his people from the Babylonian empire at that moment in human history. Think about our nation. Think about our church or the church in America. I am not a prophet. I cannot tell you what God precisely is doing. But I can tell you this. There is much wickedness in our nation. There is much wickedness in the church of Jesus here in the United States or those who call themselves the church. Uh, Newsflash, New City Church, still sinners, still broken. And we are in many ways, I think, experiencing the consequences or the judgment for sin. And I would lovingly say to you, like Joel has said, you ain't seen nothing yet. God says, return to me in repentance for the short short term and for the immediate. So again, what do we do? The nation, the church, broadly speaking, my own heart and soul. Where do we run for hope in in the realities of the day of the Lord and its promises and its terror? Should we assume that the election on Tuesday is going to solve this problem for us? Very no. Should we assume that that the government or some, some amount of social programs is going to fix this for us? Very no. What should we do in this situation? Should we assume that every fake prophet who says, I've figured out when Jesus is coming back and we should lose our minds over that and and pull away from the world and hunker down and start collecting canned peas, should we do that? No. Should we stop sharing the good news of the gospel because it offends people in our culture? No. Should we shift gears and go, you know, people are basically good people. The sin thing, not a big deal. Let's just be nice. No. What should we do? We should heed the warning of Joel. We should genuinely, by God's grace, look into our own hearts, honestly. Confess our sins. Ask for his forgiveness. Know that by his grace, we have it. And say, Lord Jesus, change my direction in ways that I have wandered from you. Draw me back to yourself. And we should keep sharing the bad news of sin and the good news of the gospel of salvation available today in Jesus Christ. We should keep sharing with our lives and with our words. Anybody who will listen, share that message. Amen.